Our lesson today will be looking at an overview as we look at the book of Hebrews. Our lesson is entitled, A Flyover Review of the Book of Hebrews. Many of you people have taken a plane ride before. How many have flown over the United States in an airplane? Good number of you people. And from 30,000 feet up, you only, you see vast areas of the United States, but you don't see it in detail. We're going to be looking at the book, a book in the New Testament that is of vital importance to everyone in this building. It's a book that the Holy Spirit added to the canon of the New Testament. My Bible entitles this at chapter number one, and I'd ask you to turn there. It says, The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. Now, typically, millions of Christians the world over have read from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. How many of those people that were reading from the book of Hebrews knew that they were reading their own history if they are among the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic, Scandinavian, Gothic nations of the Western world? Very few people connect the book of Hebrews to their own genetic heritage. So we want to do that today to remind all of our young people here today that the word Hebrews, Hebraic history is really a part of who you are. We were Hebrews before we were, were um, Israelites. The word Hebrew predates the word name Israel. It's very important that we know about this book. Now, I would suggest today, congregation, that probably the primary purpose of this lesson is to increase your interest in this book so that you would spend some time in it on your own. It's a book that is filled with wonderful information. There are a number of people, in fact, I read a number of scholars who claim that the New Testament book of Hebrews is one of the most self-authenticating books of divine inspiration to prove from its own pages its divinity that can be found in the Bible. It's a marvelous, it's a marvelous epistle. Parts of it are very deep. And some parts of it are very, very simple. But we're just going to look at it as an overview today with the goal of trying to hopefully become everyone, that everyone would become invested in wanting to know more and all that you can about this wonderful epistle to the Hebrews. So we're going to start with the overview here today. We're going to remember that St. Paul is the 
is the person the Holy Spirit used to write the book. I don't really know why some authors try to say that it's not certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 13, 23 pretty well nails it down. And we know that St. Paul is the author of this book. Now, of course, really, it's the Holy Spirit doing the writing. This is a divinely inspired word from heaven. It's a book that has survived 2,000 years of scrutiny. So it's a wonderful book. It was written before the temple of, of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So it predates the end of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It is a book that attempts to guide Christians who were old covenant Israelite believers to guide them into an understanding that a major change had taken place in Christianity because the Messiah had arrived. So here's what we have to do, church. <clears throat> Imagine you were an Old Testament believer that had been looking for the Messiah all of your life and preceding generations had been anxiously living in anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah. Well, when the Messiah did arrive, when Jesus arrived on this earth, how many of you know that he was not immediately accepted? A majority of the people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The book of Hebrews was an attempt very quickly to build a bridge to the old covenant minds so that they could understand that a whole new era had opened up before them. It was the beginning of the unfolding of a whole new paradigm in the history of the Israel people because now the Messiah has been born from a virgin. As Jesus grows up, very few people know that this is the Messiah, the anointed of, of, of the anointed Messiah, the Christ that was to come. I'm sure that his father and mother knew that because they were, you, you know, that Mary was invested in this idea of Jesus being an unusual child from the moment she was visited by the angel Gabriel. But there's a whole world of people that struggled to understand that the Messiah, so long anticipated, was finally here. And then, another reason for the writing of this book, and maybe one of the primary reasons, of course, was to Sound a warning. This is a real important point. The book of Hebrews sounds a warning. 
to everyone who has known the truth and walks away from it. How many of you know it's dangerous to know the truth? If you know the truth and walk away from it and forfeit it, it's a very, very serious thing. And no other book in the Bible will point you to the reality of what will happen if you become a walkaway. A walkaway from the truth. Now I have people that write and they ask for information. And one of the notes that I had written to me was, how do you know when you stand behind the pulpit, how do you know who is going to believe God's word? And that's, that's a good question. Because we don't know as preachers who will or who will not respond to God's word. But I do know what Jesus said. He said in John chapter 10, verse 26, But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man Pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If you mark John 10, 26 through 30 in your Bible, that is the irrevocable testimony of Jesus that he loses no one that is called and elected to the truth of his gospel. He doesn't lose anyone. What he bought and paid for, he will not lose. So how in the world do we reconcile the idea with the walkaways? What about the walkaways? The people that have known the truth and walk away from it. What do we say to those people? How do we reconcile those people? Now, none of us want to see a walk away person. Nobody likes to see that. But the truth is, we are always in every generation in a war for the souls of man. And I really believe that it's very important to remember. And uh, Tucker Carlson told an audience what I'm going to tell you here very recently. He said when he left Fox News earlier this year, he was very discouraged and despondent. But he decided to read the Bible. As a member of the Episcopal Church, 
he had really not re read the Bible very much at all. He said he thought that was, you know, the job of the preacher. He said he started to read the Bible. He read the New Testament first. And he was amazed at what he found in the Bible. He couldn't understand why the Episcopal Church had hidden away all the truth he found in the New Testament. So then he started to read the Old Testament. At the time of his testimony, he had just finished the book of Deuteronomy. But he said that I have found things I have never heard before in my life. I've never heard them before in my life. And he was reading the Bible with, with shall we say, a, a thirst and a hunger for the Word of God. He truly was. And he made an appeal that everyone that listened to this podcast would begin to pray for 10 minutes every day. He said, let's just all pray 10 minutes in concentrated prayer. Now, God is talking to people in America today, church. But I'd like to suggest that if you're sitting here today, God has been talking to you. And we do not want to become a walkaway. The book of Hebrews is designed to hopefully, prayerfully, preserve you from being a walkaway from the truth that God has called you into. So with those thoughts in mind, beloved, let's pray and we'll begin the lesson. Father in heaven, we are humbled to open the Bibles today. We're humbled by the preservation of your word. We're humbled by the inspiration of these oracles of God that have been passed down to us from the centuries of time. We are humbled, Father in heaven, that you have allowed us to have our eyes open to who we are, that we are the children that the Bible was written to, for, and about the Israel of God. We thank you, Father, from the bottom of our hearts that we've been so privileged to know what we do know, even though it is a small thimble of truth compared to the ocean of truth that we know lies within the pages of the Bible. So God in heaven today, as we open the book of Hebrews, I pray that if there is any drought, any spiritual drought, dryness in our hearts, that you would water the dryness, the spiritual dryness of our hearts. Open us up, Lord God, to the understanding of how important your word is, that we may grasp the significance of knowing that we are Israelites, that the Bible was written to, for, and about us, and the Bible 
and all of Christianity was designed for the white race. It was exclusively given the truth of Scripture to the Israelites. And we humbly acknowledge that today, Father, and ask now for the Holy Spirit to guide this lesson in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's open to chapter number one as we, as we move very rapidly through this book today. Hebrews chapter number one here is where we are in our study, and we're going to read verses one through three. Now, everybody hold on to the idea the book was written to help Israelites of the Old Covenant transition to the New Covenant that Jesus and His precious blood will make available at Calvary. So our reader today, our brother Ezekiel, will read the first three verses of chapter number one. Notice how it begins. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the first chapter forces us all to focus on the life, the person, the ministry, and the purpose of the Messiah that had made his appearance. This book was written somewhere about 64 AD, roughly six years before the armies under Titus, a Roman general, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So the Israelites here, the Judean Hebrew believing people in the first century, were being guided into the knowledge of their new Messiah that was not just someone that was prophesied to come, but that he had arrived that he had been crucified, that he had rose from the dead, bodily ascended into heaven, and commissioned his apostles and disciples to build churches in the New Testament. So their focus is now on Jesus. He's better than the angels. He's above angels. He's above everyone. The whole first chapter is a Wonderful introduction to the one who can save us all, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, 
and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So we can see very quickly now, beginning in chapter 2, that there is a call to remember what you've heard. A call to not forget the truth that you've been brought into. The, the word is very clear that uh, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and we let the words of truth slip away from us, and we grow dull, and our hearts begin to be calloused, and somehow, in the pursuit of life, we suddenly lose our love, our first love of the truth. Woe be unto us, we need revival. So, the warning here is that we should not lose what we have heard. We should not let them slip. For if God holds the angels accountable, hello, if God holds the angels accountable for the life they live and have been given, how much more shall he judge us who will one day judge the angels. Now, how many of you know that the Bible says one day you'll stand in judgment of the angels? Where would I find that? I would find that recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. So let's go to chapter number 3 as we read verses 7 through 13. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the days of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is yet today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Last Sabbath day, we spent an entire Sabbath Bible study in these verses, so we'll not labor these verses except to say that in chapter number three, we are to guard our hearts against unbelief and hardness of heart. Hardness of heart comes from root of bitterness, a, a heart that cannot forgive, a heart that builds on grudges and malice and rancor and just, they just labor over the unimportant things of life. If you have a problem with someone, forgive them and walk away. Don't spend one idle moment in unforgiveness. It's not worth it. In a, in a hundred years, it will mean nothing. In five years, it may not mean anything. Just walk away. Do not 
harbor unforgiveness, hardness of heart. It fosters a root of bitterness, can rob you of your health, can give you ulcers. Bitterness can give you a good dose of cancer. Let's go to chapter 4. Chapter number 4, verses 1 and 2. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Congregation, you're going to remember very vividly that when the Israelites failed to leave Kadesh Barnea and make a conquest of the land, that that entire generation that turned away from making the land of Canaan their conquest, that whole generation was lost excepting for Caleb and Joshua. That's probably the reason we have a Joshua and a Caleb in a family here today. They're, they have two sons named after the only two survivors of an entire generation of Israelites who simply refused to go make a conquest of Canaan. Chapter 4 is all about the failure of the Israelites to enter into their rest in Canaan under Joshua. But it has an overarching view of our entering into rest, not only celebrating a weekly Sabbath, but remembering the ultimate rest is a kingdom rest. When we spend 1,000 years in a sabbatical rest called the millennial reign. That's the ultimate rest. So let's move forward now to chapter number 5, Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read verses 12 through 14. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. These verses are very important because they summarize in a marvelous way the idea that we as a body of believers are consistently called upon to grow in our knowledge. We are to, first of all, master the first principles of the gospel. So what, may I ask you, are the first principles of the gospel? The initial first principles of the gospel. Those people who do not understand and know the first principles, they're, 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 they're temporarily stalled out because they're never going to grow in knowledge. They're, all gonna, they're always going to be drinking milk. 
Do you know that a mother's milk is designed for a baby, and when that baby reaches an age where it is ready for a different kind of nourishment, the mother's milk is no longer needed. We're not to stay as Christians in the milk of the gospel. Now, some people can't graduate from the milk. They can't be weaned from the milk because they get, they are stuck in that world of drinking milk, meaning they hardly ever know anything beyond John 3, 16. They know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And how many of you know that that verse has nothing to do with saving the world? But that's where a lot of Christians remain their entire life. And there are multiple churches in this country that repetitiously preach John 3.16 in a different way every, every Sunday. They just come at it a different way. So we're, we're supposed to grow in the Word and mature. Now, when we move into chapter 6, do you know what chapter 6 is going to do for you right quick? Hebrews chapter number 6 is going to teach you some of the very first principles of the gospel that everybody ought to know so that we don't have to come back and camp out on them all the time. These are fundamental first principles of the gospel. They're, they're spelled out for us. So let's read them, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain, that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. You can read these words, church, at everybody here, even our children. Even some of the children can know that these are very serious words. If you have once been enlightened or illuminated, you have been given the knowledge of the truth. And for whatever reason you walk away from it, 
I didn't write the Bible, but it says, and we just heard it from the Word of God read here right now. If we have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come, if we have known the truth, and we walk away from it, it's not a good thing. So what do we do? How do we hold on to people? How many of you know, I, I'm not so concerned about the children, I'm concerned about the parents. How do you hold on to the parents? The children may be fine if the parents stay steady. The children may be fine if the parents grow up, mature, and become true soldiers of Christ. God is looking for good soldier Christian men and women to be parents. Our children, once they arrive in the world, deserve to have mature, grown-up parents who do not have to be babied and nursed from someone's milk. I mean, we need to remember, church, that we are moving into some, a very serious season of history. This is no time to be playing games with God. No time to be hot and cold. Happy and not happy. Grab a hold of the handles of the plow. Hold on and don't look back. Look through the windshield, not the rear view mirror. The windshield's got plenty of vision space. Your rear view mirror is a narrow little window. Don't look back at what could have been, what might have been, what should have been. Look through the windshield and say, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are before, I, say it with me, press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Look through the windshield. Our children, our sons and daughters, are waiting to be led by God-fearing, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled, mature parents. And we need to be that kind of parents. Let's go to chapter number 7. And our reader will read from chapter number 7. Verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First, being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, 
abideth a priest continually. Okay, just for a moment, Ezekiel. You know, church, Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. Did you notice without descent? Now, it hasn't been that long ago that someone at a festival asked me if I believed that I was in the order of Melchizedek. I almost needed a chair to sit in. I couldn't believe that question would be asked. In order to be in the order of Melchizedek, look at verse number 3. Without a father, without a mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Do you know anyone, any mortal that could qualify to be in the order of Melchizedek outside of Christ our Savior? Absolutely not. Read on. From verse number four. Now, consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Do you know, people, it's very, very important for us to remember that theology is generational. Every generation is building on the behavior of the preceding generation. If every generation has to begin at square one, we never build much. But if every generation stands on the shoulders of its preceding generation, we can really, really mature and grow. So if we have one generation of faithful people, and they remain faithful, we have their children coming on behind them, and then we have another generation thereafter, very quickly you have three generations. But it requires faithfulness. Enduring faithfulness to build generational truth. In this, in the verses just read, we have Levi, little Levi here that paid tithing. He paid tithing as the recipient of the blessing of the obedience of Abraham. When you walk in obedience, it becomes passed on to those who follow you. It accrues to those who follow in your 
footsteps. But they too have to pick up the mantle and become bearers of the truth and living in God-fearing faithfulness. Let's go to chapter number 8, and we'll read from verses 8, verse 1, and then 6 through 13. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And now at verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established under better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Beloved, chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews is one of the most absolutely dynamic chapters to validate that the Bible is exclusively written to, for, and about Israel. Jeremiah leaves us with the promise in the Old Covenant that God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Hebrews 8 confirms the very same language that God made the new covenant with Israel and Judah. How dare preachers universalize these words and make them a universal covenant for the whole wide world. This is a racial covenant, specifically identifying the racial people. And it is no mystery that Israel was a Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Gothic people of white skin. It is no wonder that the exclusivity of the Bible is a foundational doctrine that people, especially preachers, run from like it's the plague because it completely invalidates their universal idea of salvation for all races. Let's go to chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. 
So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This is a wonderful summation of chapter number nine, these last two verses, because the entire chapter is designed to take us from the old tabernacle in the wilderness and that glorious divine service into the concept that Christ is now our high priest in the heavens, making intercession for us, and that every one of us will one day give an account of the life that we have lived on this earth. And so it concludes with saying that as it is appointed unto men once to die, does anyone know anyone that never died? Well, you could point out Elijah the prophet. Do you know anyone else? Well, there's no record of Enoch dying. Beyond those two mortals, do we know of any others? Don't know of any. Some people like to believe that Moses did not die, but the Bible says emphatically that Moses was dead, buried. So we, we won't allow that teaching to survive. Let's think about it here for a moment, church. The moment that life leaves this body, we will enter into a new era, and we will meet our God. But there is no cessation of life in the soul at the death of the body. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, but not all. You see how carefully the Bible is written? Christ was to bear the sins of many, but it doesn't say the whole world does it, Caleb. Doesn't say that. So who will Jesus die for? He will die for the people that he came to save. My sheep hear my voice. Matthew 15, 24, from the words of Jesus, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's go to chapter number 10. Chapter number 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the great danger of willful sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, how many of you know, and I think you will agree, that we're all sinners? So we could say that we do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born into a sinful nature. And that nature of sin within us is conquerable by the power of the Holy Spirit and the saving strength of God's anointing upon our life. How do we overcome sin? By being right where you are today. By coming and living in accountability to God. There's not a better way in the world to live your life than a weekly checkup with the great physician, your Father in Heaven, in corporate worship. Daily prayers, daily Bible study, all of those are the ones, are the tools that help us remain strong and free from sin. But there's, if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Those are powerful words. You know, it may not be a mystery why the book of Hebrews is so little read in our generation. It's got some strong language in it. This is a, this is a book of, of strong, powerful language. Let's go to chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is one of the most well-loved chapters in the Bible. It's been read by millions of people. Begins with Abel, goes to Enoch, it goes on to Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and all the panorama of names that it covers is rather enormous. It's a marvelous chapter. And you know, there is no reason in the world, absolutely no reason in the world, why I could not look at chapter number 11 and imagine that I can write the name of Caleb Markovic in this chapter. How can I do that? If if, if Caleb grows up, as I think he will, and becomes a mature young soldier of Christ, and he lives his life 
in God-fearing faithfulness, His name will be added to this chapter by God Himself. And that's true for every one of us, church. So congratulations, Caleb. You're going to be in this book. Just, just trust God. Take a hold of God's hand and believe the truth and listen to your parents and you're going to make it. Let's go to uh, chapter number 12. Chapter number 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And now in verses 25 to 29. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, and I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We have heard the words, our God is a consuming fire. And we've heard some very stern words and admonitions from the book of Hebrews here today. I would like for us to take note of the verbiage in the chapter, in the closing verses here, where it says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. A kingdom which cannot be moved. The ark of history is moving us toward the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. We may see a nation in decline. We may see America faltering. There's a kingdom coming and America's fall is all part of the painful process of eventually bringing in a kingdom. So there's going to be, according to these verses, a lot of shaking. This word once more signifying the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Do I dare ask a question? Question. How many of you know that during the COVID shutdown, lockdown, when they locked 
thousands of church buildings across America. How many of you know that a lot of those churches never opened up again? How many of you know that some churches actually required proof of vaccine before they would let you come back? Folks, the spiritual barometer of America is in very, very bad shape. And I cannot, I cannot even put into words the importance of having a church family for the season of history we're moving into. Everyone needs a church family. Everyone. And woe be to those that have none. So how many people in this congregation were injected? Not one that I know of. Not one. Do you know what? The best friend I have in Shell City today, I graduated out of high school with him. He told me that he knew better than to take the injection that killed his wife. But he said he couldn't find the heart to believe his government would lie to him. But now he says, I know they lie. Their lives stole my wife away from me. She died after the second booster. I mean after the first booster. First booster, she died shortly thereafter. So the, there's going to be a lot of shaking going on, church, and we need each other. We need Christ and we need one another. Amen? Amen. We do. So let's go to chapter number 13. And let's read... Real quickly, there are in this chapter a total of 25 verses. They cover all of the important little virtues here for a victorious overcoming Christian life. So let's read them together. Verse 1, brotherly love. Verse 2, Say it with me, hospitality. Verse 3, compassion. Verse 4, moral purity. Verse 5, contentment. Verse 6, fearlessness. Verse 7, authority. Verse 8, security. Verse 9, doctrine, doctrinal stability. How about that one? Look across the panorama of your Israelite family in America. It is a divided house from one end to the other. Shame, shame, shame on the preachers. Verses 10 and 11, separation. That's separatism. Verses 12 and 13, suffering. Verse 14, pilgrimage. 
that's making a pilgrimage to a festival day. Verse 15, the sacrifice of praise. Verse 16, sacrificial giving. Verse 17, submission to authority. Verse 18, prayer. Verses 20 and 21, abounding in good works in the will of God. And verse 22, suffer the word of exhortation. So we're going to end with that here today. When we suffer the word of exhortation, it means that we're willingly going to humble ourselves and be exhorted to do the will of God. Shall we all be standing? Will the Hebrews of this congregation please stand?